Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I have the wonderful pleasure of hosting Esra Özyürek today to talk about her very fresh recent book, uh, Subcontractors of Guilt, Holocaust Memory and Muslim Belonging in Postwar Germany, which came out of Stanford University Press. Hi, Esra, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Um, before we dive into the book, uh, can we get to know you a little bit? Um, at the moment, I'm the Sultan Qaboos Professor in Abrahamic um, Religions and Shared Values at the Faculty of Divinity, University of Cambridge. Um, but I'm an anthropologist. I was educated in the U.S., University of Michigan. I worked at UC San Diego, London School of Economics. And now, recently, I'm here at Cambridge. I mean, every book has a story behind them. I, I was curious how you came to write this book. Okay. Yeah, there are a couple of stories um, that that brought me here. One of them is the previous book that I wrote, um, which is Being German, Becoming Muslim, Religious Conversion and Race um, in the New Germany. There, I was tracing the story of how um, white Germans and also some other um, immigrants in Germany become Muslim and what are the limits of it, what are the tensions about it. So I was trying to capture the tension between race and religion in the German context. While doing that research, a question that I kept asking myself was, how can Muslims, you know, again, Um, you know, between race and religion, here meaning Arab and Turkish immigrants, can become Germans. What would it take? Is it possible? Would they be accepted? Um, And thinking about it, I have realized that one of the ways um, to become a modern German is to take the burden of the Holocaust memory on one's shoulders. That is how Germans became the democratic Germans that they are, according to the narrative. Um, But, you know, it was also, I quickly realized that it is difficult for Turkish and Arab immigrants or any immigrant who arrived the country after the war to take this burden on their shoulders because it is um, uh, defined quite genealogically. Um, But anyway, I I asked myself if it can be the case and can we also think about it again as a religious conversion? You know, so can one convert to Germanness and if the Holocaust memory could help? So that is one story. And another story is that, you know, I came of age let's say in late 1980s, early 1990s, um, you know, after the military coup in Turkey, 
um, you know, during the height of the war between Kurdish guerrillas um, and the Turkish army. And so a lot of people um, were thinking about what, you know, state-citizen relationships, um, war, peace, um, you know, harmony, um, equal rights, whatnot. And within that context, more and more people started talking about the Armenian genocide. And there was the idea that because Turkey did not recognize the Armenian genocide, contemporary atrocities um, were possible. And that is also why a resolution couldn't come to the issue. So many people were looking to Germany as a good example, because also that was a time when Germany was very strongly coming to terms with the Holocaust. It had became almost mainstream, but at the same time, kind of civil society dimension was also alive. So I grew up with this understanding that, you know, Germany figured out how to come to terms with with its past, and Turkey should um, use it as a model. So when I came to Germany, I also was quite impressed, right? All the Storpersteine on the floors commemorating the losses um, of individuals um, who were murdered during the Holocaust, memorials, um, also in my conversations, how um, people were seriously thinking about anti-Semitism. So I was in awe. You know, I, I remain to be so. A lot of work um, went into coming to that place. Um, but at the same time, working with Muslims for my other research at the time, I have realized how Muslims were being pushed out of that discourse. So as Germans were learning about the Holocaust and then through that becoming better citizens, more democratic, um, th- that was a work that was almost impossible for immigrants to do. So so both of those um, brought me to it. And another you know, final dimension related is that when I was doing this research, I was in Germany with a Jewish partner. So that also kind of brought into let- attention tensions between being Jewish and being Muslim in Germany different expectations, different kinds of similar and different kinds of racializations. Um, Yeah, so so all of them, I think, (laughs) made this book. And I mean, I want to ask you also this question from a different angle, which is like, how did anti-Semitism became a Muslim issue in Germany? Okay, yes. So this concept... Muslim anti-Semitism didn't exist until 2000s. People were not talking about it. Um, So it started to be used. Um, I think a really important breaking point is 1999 United Nations Durham Conference in South Africa. Um, That was a point in which countries have discussed both reparations for slavery and also um, 
you know, injustices in Israel. A kind of an interesting break had happened. Um, the countries who supported the idea of reparations and the people who um, believe that Israel should be held accountable um, kind of merged together. And then it was, I understand that it was a um, contentious meeting. I think Americans have left, although right now I cannot be sure. But anyway, just let me say that in that meeting, the idea that um, that there is a separation between the white um, European countries and the rest in relation to how they will relate to Israel came into being. Um, and after that, and you know, then the 2000s happened and a lot of things happened in early 2000s. Um, you know, the um, European Union, you know, it changed from um, the European Economic Community to European Union. So it was like a now a cultural unit also, not just an economic um, unit. Um, also 9-11 happened, um, Second Intifada happened. So as a result of that, there were um, protests in European cities. And then these protests were um, anti-Israeli actions, but also shifting towards anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitic slogans were being chanted on the streets. Flags of Israel were being burned. Um, so all of these turned attention towards Muslims. A new anti-Semitism is increasing. And then that the idea that Muslims have a different way of relating to Israel and also a different way of relating to Jews. Um, so at that point, we have we are witnessing number of meetings being held in Berlin, in Vienna, um, about how we need to separate, you know, your traditional anti-Semitism from a Muslim anti-Semitism. How this is a categorically different one from the regular anti-Semitism and also the language that was being used. Sometimes it would be called the old anti-Semitism versus the new anti-Semitism, kind of indicating the old anti-Semitism is old, that it is anachronistic, it is passing away. But then the new anti-Semitism, that is the new problem, that is the current one that is in our hands, is the Muslim one. It is turned it is anti-Israel, but it is not only about Israel, but it is a new anti-Semitism and this is held by Muslims. So this new concept kind of motivated lots of educational programs um, in Germany and in consecutively other uh, West European countries. And what is also interesting for my purposes is that it didn't just stay in the way they relate to Israel, but then it was also connected to the understanding of the Holocaust. You know, then as if these people don't understand the Holocaust, that they need a new kind of learning about the Holocaust. Um, so that kind of captured my attention. And also, I mean, in the book, you talk a lot about some of these programs and uh 
what is very interesting what was very interesting reading the book to me was the, the way on the one hand there's this kind of structural way of defining what muslim uh, anti-semitism is and on the other hand how i mean some muslims or people racialized as muslims taking up this challenge to become more german by trying to not be muslim anti-semites can you talk about this tension a little bit how people reacted to this idea that now they are the new anti-semites and that they do not understand german history how do they how they do not take the responsibility on their shoulders so when i talk to people who you know older people who migrated you know i don't know in 1960s 1970s to germany they told me that when um, other children were learning about the holocaust the second world war the teachers would say you know to immigrant children honey this is not your thing you don't have to worry about it you can either draw pictures or at some you know if the teachers are more politically oriented they would say why don't you think about how turkey is treating kurds how turkey has treated armenians but you know this thing is for white german children but when actually there's also another moment in 1980s it depends on the teacher but there was also this tendency to say oh look now to muslims we are doing what we did to jews you know there were also some books like that making parallels uh, but when it came to 2000s the whole discourse has changed so now it was the muslims who were being who were being anti-semitic and they were the ones who needed to be educated and then they were the ones putting germany into shame by bringing anti-semitism back to the streets back to the country and then it had to be dealt you know within these groups so the people that i have talked to 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 some people this you know obviously creates a big um, embarrassment difficulty lots of people feel really afraid to say anything so they feel like whatever they say can be taken as anti-semitic and they don't exactly know what happens that they are put into that situation you know talking to young people also a little bit older people so they say i just stay quiet i don't say anything so that is one common response but that can also be taken as not caring it is quite difficult to get out of it there is almost no outside of this and another response you know you can say maybe statistically not too high but i would say quite significant i know lots of people like that who decided to take this on and go with it then become activists in fighting against muslim anti-semitism taking because also now there is considerable amount of funding for such programs that is also a um resource for people who kind of want to be educators who are intellectuals who think about issues that relate to racism and where in cities like berlin it is kind of difficult to find jobs so it is um a mini industry that is also actively seeking to employ um muslim background individuals and it is it would be wrong to say they are doing this reluctantly they are actually doing it 
you know, um, passionately, you know, seriously. They really want to learn more about anti-Semitism. They really want to learn more about the Holocaust. And then they want to teach about it. So not everyone would maybe want to do this in Muslim-only contexts. Maybe they would want, you know, in mixed contexts, they would want, you know, the whole society to talk about it, but they are happy to do it. Um, so they're both interested in itself, and they also see it as a way to talk about contemporary race relations in Germany in a way that they cannot. So if they talk about anti-Semitism, if they go to Auschwitz, if they go to other, you know, Jewish sites, um, sites of um, death and killing, then after that, they're able to bring up what is happening today. It gives them some credibility to talk about it. You know, so it is not that they're doing it only strategically so that, haha, you know, let me put up with this. And then now, finally, I'll have a way to talk about myself. But they do see it um, related to each other. So that is why I use the concept of flipping the script. So in a way, they flip the script while they are uh, being called anti-Semites, you know, the one who caused trouble, they, you know, go above and beyond the expectations that are set upon themselves. And they say, no, it is true. There is anti-Semitism and there is also racism. Let's talk about it. Um, and then they put themselves into the narrative and then hopefully maybe change this narrative that excludes them. But also, fun I mean, funnily enough, there's this great effort in Germany to distinguish between anti-Semitism and racism, right? As if kind of uh, assimilating them into each other would create this, like, would be almost akin to uh, relativizing Holocaust, for instance. Yes, yes. and then this idea that racism and anti-Semitism are different from each other also comes from this Durban conference that I was telling you about in 1999. Until that, there were not many people that I encountered who talk about racism and anti-Semitism as separate things. But after that, there is an investment popular in Germany, I would say, but not necessarily everywhere. The idea that it is, it, it is something different, like fundamentally different. I don't know, they have some ideas that, you know, racism happens to people who you think lower than yourself, but anti-Semitism happens when you think people who are better than yourself, um, which I, you know, the, the, the counterpoint is that every single racism is different. And in every single racism, there is both aspect of thinking these people are lower than you, but also there is the aspect of being afraid of those people. I don't know if there can be sometimes bodily um, attributes might be given to them or that, I don't know, that they're reproducing, they'll take over um, or, yeah, that, or that they are uh, smarter somehow. But it like always goes together, the, the fear um, involved both looking up and looking down on people. And I mean, going back to the kind of groups going to 
uh, Holocaust sites, um, Muslim groups going to Holocaust sites. I mean, you you t- uh, I love that chapter about wrong emotions and wrong uh, uh, wrong kind of empathy. Can you can you tell a bit about like how? Um, I mean, just about the, what what are wrong emotions in Holocaust education? Yes, yes. So what really struck me um, in Holocaust education programs for Muslims, especially when they are led by, um, you know, white German educators, was how Muslim students were accused of showing the wrong reactions. Not that they were not caring. So one argument goes in Germany is that now people do not care about the Holocaust anymore. You know, they just want to move beyond that. But when it comes to Muslims, it is actually not like that. Sometimes <laughs> as if they show too much attention or they are more like showing the wrong attention. Um, so one thing that happens is wrong identification. So my argument is that Holocaust education, you know, obviously was introduced to white Germans to think about the wrong that they have done. Right? You know, when allies um, occupied Germany, they took Germans, um, you know, in some cases they took Germans to the extermination camps and then they have showed them what has happened. And then they put signs saying you are guilty. And there was a strong sense at least on the American side, that these people do not feel guilty. They don't look troubled. What is wrong with them? We need to show them and we need to get the emotion out of them that they have done wrong. You know, so there are some people who argue that, well, these people were just out of the war, you know, of course. And then the way they, you know, like, who knows? I, I you know, I wasn't there. I don't know what exactly was um, happening, but let's say that is the starting point of the um, Holocaust education, to to tell people, show people that they have done wrong, and also to empathize with the victim. So my strong sense is that even though the German society has changed, you know, throughout the decades, now it is at least 25% immigrant background, meaning ancestors of that 20% of people were not there when the war was happening. So there is, oh, and another thing I should have said, and then the way Germans, at least in West Germany, it was a bit different in East Germany, has dealt with the war was quite genealogical. Um, and then early intellectuals such as Karl Jasper talked about it. Now coming to terms with this guilt will connect us to each other. So in a way, being the perpetrators, you know, let's now make this a sense of new community kind of then, you know, m- move beyond it. Um, and that that kind of genealogical understanding, it is the guilt of those of us who made this crime makes it difficult for newcomers to enter into this discourse. Um, okay, and then the, the aim of the Holocaust education, if you look at you know, United Nations documents or other documents, is to um, foster empathy. And the idea is that you know, empathy 
is the kind of emotion that will make us better citizens, that will prevent um, atrocities, suffering, whatnot. And then the model is usually the Holocaust education. But my, again, observation is that it assumes, um, you know, when Holocaust is being taught, when these examples, when students are also given examples of going to that to moments where they make decisions about doing something right or wrong, and then finally having an empathy with the victim and not choosing the right thing of, let's say, not um, acting um, against that person, not choosing to hurt that person. But all of this assumes that um, they are coming from a nation of perpetrators, that in their past, there are perpetrators. So as if they go to that point and then they try to imagine if they did the right thing, how would they have acted? And that, you know, so I don't know, for example, Anne Frank education that is from the Netherlands, but, you know, these are all uh, connected to each other and they learn from each other. So they create situations where you say yes or no. Um, Okay, you know, so then it assumes you are the potential perpetrators. And that, um, so you empathize with the victims, but then you quickly come back to your old position. You are not supposed to view yourself as the victim. You always need to see yourself as a potential perpetrator and prevent yourself, stop yourself from acting from this position of power in a way that is harmful. So when um, immigrants, racialized immigrants, go to these programs, what they do is that they strongly identify with the victims. For example, they look at the pictures I have seen so many times. They'll look at the before the Holocaust, for example, they'll say, oh, look at these people. They look at, they look like our families. You know, they look very German, but they're like a bit darker sometimes. I don't know, they will have photographs with for their bar mitzvahs, you know, other religious um, rituals. They'll say, oh, these are like us. So then if this was happening now, we would be in their place. You know, they find it quite difficult to put themselves in the position of white Germans when looking at those photographs. But when they say such things that we, it would be us, um, then teachers become very angry at them because that is what, right, you know, because it is in um, white Germans shouldn't see themselves as victims. When they start to see themselves as victims, you know, the, the problem starts, right? That is kind of the right wing or, again, um, pro-Nazi kind of understanding of we are the victims of Jews, you know, like the, turning the victim-perpetrator um, dyad. But when immigrant background people do that, it comes from a different place. You know, they it is difficult actually for them not to think about themselves like that, but it really angers white um, teachers in many examples. And they say, oh, if you are going to react like that, 
you know, don't come here. Don't, you know, dare to think about it. So those moments I have taught were quite missed opportunities. You know, then the students get surprised. Oh, but I'm here. I'm learning about this. I'm really dealing with this thing. And on top of it, I'm yelled at, right? I mean, of course it is. Of course you cannot at all compare Muslim experiences now with Jewish experiences of, you know, during the Nazi regime. That is obvious. But from an emotional place, if there will be an empathy, I mean, of course, that they will see that. You know, so what I'm suggesting is that a Holocaust education program needs to consider that German society is different now. People are coming from different places. And if empathy is the aim, people will be arriving at that empathy. People will be, you know, Husserl's notion of um, putting yourself into other shoes is used um, pretty common. But which shoes are they leaving for a second and moving into, into other shoes should be taken seriously. It will not be the same for everyone. You know, of course, you know, the history can be taught, you know, of course, what is happening now versus what was happening in 1930s and 40s is different. But from the emotional point, there needs to be space for um, uh, different kinds of experiences is what I was discussing there. And I mean, also there, I mean, you were talking about the scripts and there are those who know what is expected of them and they're hoping to be moved in the right way so that their Germanness is proven once they visit these sites. Can you talk a little bit about those as well? Um, so one thing that I have noticed, again, in these programs was that, for example, when the programs are with Arab students and mostly with Palestinian students, you know, young people, um, the notorious Mufti of Jerusalem, who collaborated with Hitler, is being emphasized. I mean, the Mufti was a bad person, you know, he uh, sympathized with the Nazis, but he wasn't Hitler, right? You know, he didn't really kill people, he didn't have that much powers, and then he came, he moved to Germany and lived, um, you know, was um, employed or paid by the Nazi regime. You know, so in a way that they are taught to find bad people or Nazis in their own genealogies. Um, and also when it is Turks, for example, not always, but you know, I have heard it enough, that how Hitler was inspired by Atatürk, which he was. But again, that doesn't make Atatürk Hitler, right? It is, you know, <laughs> like a, a, a completely irrelevant, let's say, to um, to, to what happened during uh, Shoah. So, so my observation there is that then these like parallel communities are created where within that, these communities do the work that German have done, but finding a perpetrator in their own communities. But they're worse than Germans because they do not apologize enough. So there are some I have found who take that seriously, that they really look for Nazis in their own genealogies. And they, this can also expand 
that there are um, books written by, you know, Turkish German intellectuals or Arab German intellectuals, that they really liken their communities to Nazis, you know, so like rather than um, finding a character like the Mufti of Jerusalem, they will say things like, oh, the way our families worked is just like Nazis. Now, for example, there is this um, Palestinian background, now German intellectual called Arab Mansur. So he really likens, you know, an Arab family to a Nazi family. And then even though these concepts are not true, you know, the idea that, oh, Nazis were also sexually oppressed, or the Nazi families um, um, had these fathers as very strong authority powers, and at the same time, they were absent. Um, You know, so, and Muslim families now are just like that. Or when they emphasize so much about rules, like Salafi groups, then they're just like Nazis. So we need to go against them. We need to go against those religions, traditions, in a way that we went against Nazis. So in a way, they recreate the same narrative, and then they create Nazis in the Muslim society. Or again, um, Seyran Atesh also makes these arguments about um, how just like 1968 movements, in that movement, Germans went against their families. Now Muslims should do the same because Muslim families are just like Nazi families. Um, so interestingly, this does give them a lot of um, legitimacy, a lot of space um, in, in public discussions. It is not a problem in itself to point out problems in Muslim families, you know, if there are, and I am sure there are in certain uh, pockets, but turning them into Nazi families is highly problematic. You know, they are not at all Nazi families, you know, it is absurd. But at the same time, you know, these intellectuals know more than I do is a way to um, have some legitimacy and then turn the story, turn their own stories into something that the mainstream society will hear. So I would say some of those intellectuals, the ones that are most popular, are more creating a space for themselves. And most of them have been taken up by far-right groups and that they are talking to those groups rather than to Muslims. You know, Muslims do not listen to them, but far-right groups, for them, they say the things that they would like to say, but it is better if you have a Muslim saying these things. But I also met some young Muslim activists. They take some burden... Um, some of the burden of these accusations against them. And then they say, okay, it it, it is true that we are sexist, that we are anti-Semitic, whatnot, and we are going to fight against it. And then we are going to show that we are being like the Germans of the 1968 generation, that we are fighting against our own communities, and we are transforming 
ourselves. And then by doing so, we are transforming the German society itself. So there can be a new Germany where all groups can be including included. So that is the part that is flipping the script, that they change who can tell the German narrative, you know, by introducing themselves into it as good and sincere actors who can um, change the narrative by changing the actors. They're not changing the narrative, I would say. They're repeating the same one, but by including themselves, they're changing it. You know, again, from one perspective, they are reproducing this idea that they are like Nazis. But at the same time, they are doing something to it. And I mean, which brings it to my kind of last question, the title of the book, Subcontracting Guilt. Can you tell a bit about that as well? Yes. So the the impression I had while working with these um young, enthusiastic activists was that they are taking on their shoulders a guilt um, that is what made the society in the first place after the war. You know, some people would say it is not the guilt, but the responsibility, you know, because even from very early on, they kept saying, German intellectuals kept saying, you know, we cannot say everyone is guilty, we don't know who is guilty, what not. Um, but anyway, it, it is the guilt, it is the burden, it is the weight um, um, of the Holocaust. But since 2000, since the um, memorial to the uh, murdered Jews of Europe have been made in Berlin and reparations have been to slaves, there has been a sense that haven't we done enough? You know, now isn't there time to move on? How are we, you know, lots of um, research shows that many Germans think, you know, how are we any different than anyone else? We haven't, you know, it's not me, it is not my parents, you know, if it is my grandparents, is it my fault? You know, haven't we done our responsibility? So there is this increasing sense of we're tired of being this guilty nation. And I say Muslims come at a perfect time. So now, you know, if the some of the guilt, you know, n- not all of it, I'm not at all saying that Germans are completely giving it away. I mean, of course, it's the official policy, it is being taught, but there is some sense that haven't we done enough? So if part of that guilt can be now passed on to Muslims, that, you know, the the German shoulders will be a bit lighter. And at the same time, there are willing Muslims who want to enter the social contract because taking the, the guilt seriously allowed Germans to be a new nation, a democratic nation, to be part of the, you know, family of the new post-war, you know, free world. So they say, can we also now enter this contract? We will do what you have done. But I say it is like subcontracting. So they are a little bit allowed, but they are not allowed fully. For example, politicians talk about when um, people do, immigrants make anti-Semitic comments or engage in anti-Semitic acts, their citizenship should be revoked. 
right? This is a country where after the war, it is made illegal that citizenship can be revoked. That is also how they were able to um, deport Jews, you know, so it is a very politically charged comment to make it. But it is also reminds immigrants that even when they are included into the nation, it is conditional, it can be taken back. So in that it is a subcontract. It is not a full contract that they're able to engage. Well, uh, it was wonderful reading the book, Ezra, and it was wonderful chatting with you about it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for um, taking the time to talk with me. Of course. Um, yeah, and we talked about uh, Ezra Uzrek's most recent book, Subcontractors of Guilt, Holocaust Memory and Muslim Belonging in Post-War Germany. Um, until next time.